the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy, featuring Josh Edison and M. Dentoff. Hello, it's the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. That is the thing you're listening to now. I am Josh Edison. I am in Auckland, New Zealand. Dr. M. Dentith is not in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, Dr. Dentith is in, in Palma, I think, now. Uh, keeps posting pictures of statues of lions that don't look a lot like lions to their Instagram. So if, if unconvincing lions are your thing, go look up Dr. Conspiracy on Instagram. You might be, might be in for a thrill. But meanwhile... Uh, I've got another another filler episode to do. It seems to be coming down to me. I noticed there was one of those one of those weird Malex drones things showed up on our feed again. I assume something's gone wonky with the podcast hosting service, but uh, that's 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 not my problem. Uh, what is my problem is that I have to have to make an episode now. So we've got something to give you this week. Uh, it seems only polite. Uh, so I have another another. Another item from our list of things we could maybe do a little episode about one time, and it's um, it's not as grim as uh, what I talked about last week, so that's nice. But it's not um, it's not what you'd call cheery either. So uh, uh, let's just play a chime and um, see where it takes us. So today I want to tell you the story of the mysterious disappearance of Brenda Heen. Brenda Heen was a woman who lived in Australia in the 1970s, and decades before that presumably, uh, who disappeared mysteriously. But before I get to that, I need to do a little bit of of scene setting, a little bit of background. So this all starts with a lake. Lake Pedder, P-E-D-D-E-R, was a was, is, slash was, a lake in the southwestern part of Tasmania. Uh, it was apparently quite a quite a, a, a natural wonder, a remarkable thing to see. It was a, a mountain lake in the middle of a national park with a mile-long pink quartz beach. It was apparently a very beautiful place, and the reason why I keep saying was is because the whole area was flooded in the 1970s to create dams for hydroelectric power. Uh, there is still the, the, the flooded area which is now obviously much bigger than than the original Lake Pedder was, and which the original Lake Pedder is at the bottom of, was given the name Lake Pedder, but it's it's obviously a completely different size and shape from the original, uh, to the extent that some people refuse to call it Lake Pedder anymore. Um, Now, as you can probably imagine at the time, the idea of of flooding flooding a, a beautiful lake in the middle of a national park to make a dam was was not uncontroversial. Now, on the plus side, doing this uh, was going to create a lot of jobs in the hydroelectric power industry, and of course it was going to generate a lot of power for the state of Tasmania. On the minus side, though, it was destroying a site of natural beauty and potentially didn't need to if they if they had chosen to to build the dams differently or in a different place if if they had picked some different rivers to dam off in a different area to flood adding to the controversy Lake Pedder was in the middle of the Lake Pedder National Park, but in 1967 the Tasmanian state government had revoked the the national park status 
of the park specifically to open the door for it being flooded later on, uh, which seems an odd thing. Why? why what, what's the point in designating something sort of a, a special area that presumably you shouldn't destroy if you can then just take it away when you want to destroy it? Why? Why even bother? But anyway... So a lot of people were opposed to the, the, the damming and flooding of this region, but a lot of people were for it as well, and, and a lot of powerful people were for it. In particular, the Tasmanian Hydroelectric Commission, the HEC, and State Premier at the time, Eric Rees, who was apparently so on the side of the HEC that he had the nickname Electric Eric. Um, and, and to the extent that some people would complain that the the HEC essentially ran the state government rather than rather than it being the other way around. Now the main group opposing the damming and flooding was the Lake Pedder Action Committee. This was a group that had grown out of the Hobart Walking Club. Hobart, unless I'm misremembering, is the capital of Tasmania. The Hobart Walking Club was. When we say walking club, it's not like, you know, just, just going for a stroll. This was sort of a hiking, tramping out in nature type society. And they had organised um, what they called the Pedder Pilgrimage, where a thousand odd people went, walked out to the lake. A lake, which, which by the way, right in the middle of a national park, wasn't, wasn't accessible to say, uh, you know, th there were no roads going out there. If you wanted to get there, you had to you had to hike. Um, and so they organised a hike of, of a whole bunch of people to go out there and and sort of you know see see what was being threatened. And then there was a public meeting after this this pilgrimage, which led to the formation of the committee. Um, so the committee lobbied fairly hard for the preservation of the lake. They proposed alternate um, ways of creating a dam. They, they apparently made the case for, you, you know, that you could have dammed other rivers. Apparently they suggested the idea that rather than flooding this whole area, that you, you could make a canal through which the water could flow to get to the hydroelectric plants and so on. And, and, and then that, that was argued because supposedly canals, you know, they said, oh, well, you, we can't go digging canals into the side of the mountains around here. That would, that would look worse than a flooded area. But then they reply, ah, oh, but actually there's this lower lying area that you could stick a canal through and it wouldn't show and so on and so forth. Apparently the, um, the members of the committee in particular, had, had sort of visited and, and knew the area and could sort of speak to this quite well, as opposed to many of the people um, who, were, who were pro the flooding. Now, their, their work would unfortunately um, not pay off. The flooding was approved in 1972, and the actual flooding happened, I think, in, in about 1976. It almost sounds like there was an element of sort of bloody-mindedness at play, Apparently, the the prime minister at the time had even at one point offered Premier Rees what I keep getting seeing referred to as a blank check to move the dam to somewhere else, and Rees just refused. He said, "No, I'm not. We're not. We're not. We're not having the the federal government coming in and interfering with how we run the state of Tasmania." It certainly sounds like there was there was a fair bit of no. Damn it, we we've picked this location, and no, none of you bloody hippie, greeny environmentalist types are gonna gonna get in our way of that. So backing up a little bit, Brenda Heen was a prominent 
member, probably a founding member, I believe, of the Lake Pedder Action Committee. Uh, before that, she was a member of the Hobart Walking Club, being involved in organising the Pedder Pilgrimage, and the, she'd sort of taken this on as her cause. Um, now, she was no she was no hippie environmentalist. She was uh, something of a society lady. She was in her late 50s, early 60s while this was going on. Apparently, she'd been inspired uh, after her husband died to sort of, you know, make a difference, um, to, to sort of do some good in her life, and had apparently at one point uh, been flown over Lake Pedder and sort of marvelled at what a, what a pretty sight it was, only to be told by the pilot, essentially, you know, take a good look because they're going to be flooding it in, at some stage. And she thought, well, that, that simply will not do, and um, decided to do something about it. I, I've watched a few um, videos that showed her talking. She has this lovely sort of... Um, a cross between uh, the British received pronunciation accent with a bit of an Australian accent sort of popping up from time to time. It's it's quite quite lovely to listen to. So when the community level efforts um, of of Brenda Heen and the Lake Peter Action Committee had not had any effect, they decided to go into politics. They formed the political party, the United Tasmania Group, which is generally acknowledged to be the first Green Party in the world ever, the first the first political party dedicated to environmental causes um, anywhere in the world. And Mrs. Heen ran as a candidate for the United Tasmania Group in 1971. Now, in 1972, people were still campaigning and lobbying and so on. The flooding hadn't happened yet. And she planned to go and meet with politicians in Canberra, the capital city of Australia, on the mainland. I, do, I don't know, for the people who are listening, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with Australia or not. But if you know, Austra if, if you know Australia, you know there's that the, the, the main body of, of Australia and then the big island, well, the, the smaller island, but still pretty big, to the southeast of it, which is the state of Tasmania. Um, so she was going to fly from Tasmania over to the mainland to the capital of Canberra to talk to politicians, and decided to make this a bit of a a bit of a, a publicity stunt because of it. You know, she's still in still in lobbying mode. All the all the attention and publicity she can get um, was 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 good as far as she was concerned. So to make this a bit of a stunt, she decided that she was going to fly from Hobart to Canberra in a World War II Tiger Moth and skywrite save Lake Pedder above Parliament before landing and, and getting on with the um, getting on with the, the, the lobbying and campaigning. So she and her pilot, a man called Max Price, took off on the 8th of September 1972 and were never seen again. They did not land to refuel at Flinders Island, which is sort of just off the, the north of northern coast of Tasmania, which uh, was the, was in their flight plan. So when they didn't show up there, uh, they were they were reported missing, and a search was conducted. The weather apparently was was not not overly cooperative. It sort of got worse and worse, um, and eventually, after ten days, they called off the search. Apparently, they'd also had some trouble trying to sort of uh, reconstruct their their flight path where they might have been. They had a variety of witness reports of people seeing what looked like a tiger moth, an old an old World War Two plane flying overhead, but 
it was difficult to um, put together an, an exact sort of timeline because a lot of people were like, yeah, yeah, I saw a plane, uh, would it be, I don't know, one o'clock in the afternoon or something? And then someone further along would say, oh, yeah, I saw a plane. It was probably about 12. And you know, the, the times and what have you didn't, they, they, they had had trouble working out just from um, eyewitness reports. So they uh, were not successful in finding any sign of them. So the plane was, was basically presumed lost at sea. And Mrs. Brenda Heen and Mr. Max Price were assumed dead, uh, but their bodies were not found, uh, which meant that there was there was no inquest into their deaths. So that's um that, that that's a damn shame. Obviously, that's that's fairly tragic. Um, this woman on her way to to do good in the world, um, never making it. But I wouldn't be talking about this on a podcast about conspiracy theories if if things didn't get a little more sinister. So there, there, there were allegations of, of foul play possibly having been involved in the disappearance. Apparently, a few days before her flight, Mrs. Heen had received a phone call from a man who did not identify himself, but wanted her to stop this campaigning nonsense and just let the dam go ahead, when she told him that no, she wasn't going to be stopping anytime soon, thank you very much, and in fact she was going to fly to Canberra to talk to people about it. The man apparently replied, Mrs. Heen, how would you like to go for a swim? Ominous enough. To add to this, while investigating, the police went to the hangar where the, the tiger moth had been kept and found that it had been broken into. Uh, upon searching the hangar, they found that the plane's emergency beacon had been removed from the plane and hidden behind some fuel pumps in the hangar. Uh, apparently, there was also doc documentation that would have sort of given their flight plan or something that, that, that could have been used to sort of narrow the search area they were, they were covering, uh, which you would have expected to have been in the hangar was not there as well. Uh, and so this led people to suspect that possibly the flight had been sabotaged. So some people had suggested it was the good old sugar in the gas tank, which could have which would have gummed up the engine in mid-flight and, and could have caused the plane to crash. Other people suggested something a little more sophisticated, where the, involving the um, the, the way that the uh, si the skywriting setup works. Apparently, it, it's to do with you have uh, sort of there's a spare fuel tank, which rather than having fuel in it, you put oil in it, and then to do the skywriting, you flick the switch, and this oil gets added in with the fuel, which makes the fuel the, the exhaust extra smoky, and then you you write with that. But so, and, and so I I don't know exactly how these things work, but apparently a person who knew what they do, were doing could have filled with that mechanism so that instead of oil going somewhere, fuel would end up draining out into the wrong place and they'd run out of fuel in the middle of their flight. Now, obviously, there's no evidence uh, that, that either of these things did happen, but they were just basically ways put forwards to if someone were to, were to sabotage the flight, uh, that's, that's a way they could have done it. Now, adding to the suspicious factor was the, the suggestion that the investigations and the searches that were done were perhaps not as thorough as they could have been, and the suspicion that the authorities, headed by Premier Reese, were, were quite keen for the whole thing to sort of go away, to be, to be brushed aside and tied up with a neat little bow and we never need to speak of it again. Apparently, um, apparently Mr. Reese knew that Brenda Heen was going to be going on this flight and was dead against it. Is that, that bloody, that bloody woman environmentalist going off stirring up trouble for, for me? So he would have been, uh, would have been quite happy for the flight not to have gone ahead. And so apparently, apparently that th this did put the wind up the, the, the other activists at the time. There were, I'd sort of read of people sort of saying, oh, you know, had 
did they get to Brenda? Was what was this deliberate? Should we be worried? Is one of us going to be next? Unfortunately, again, these investigations didn't turn up anything around the hangar. They, they didn't find any fingerprints or anything like that that could have um, helped them to identify the people who broke in. To the extent that uh, the police apparently even suggested that maybe it was members of the Lake Pedder Action Committee who had staged the break-in after Mrs. Heen went missing so that they could make it look sinister and, and, and sort of get sympathy for their cause. I don't really see how that could work if you have taking the, uh, the missing emergency beacon into consideration because that could only have been taken out and hidden before the flight left. It wouldn't, it's not something that could have been done after the fact, so I don't really know about that at all. Now that was, that was sort of where it stayed for a long time. Mrs. Heen and and Mr. Price had disappeared. People suspected that maybe that, that maybe some of the people who wanted to get rid of them had actually gotten rid of them, but there was nothing more that could be said about that. But uh, closer to the present day, there was a bit of movement in the case. Now, in 2008, a documentarian by the name of Scott Millwood, an Australian who was, uh, I think lives in Europe now, uh, released a book and a documentary film, both called Whatever Happened to Brenda Heen? where he went over the case. In 2003, he had been given police files on the case by an anonymous source and had apparently been given these things and told, use this for good. Now, I have to say, I've read a few different articles about this, and it's never quite been clear to me of the suspicious things I've already talked about and of the suspicious things I'm going to talk about, exactly what, which of them were known at the time and which of them were things that came out in this documentary. But nevertheless, there were people definitely had their doubts at the time, and uh, people looking at the case these days were given, given much more to worry about. So when he was making this documentary, Mr. Millwood offered a $100,000 reward for any information leading to a solution to the, to the mystery of these disappearances, and he also set up a tip line to, to try and gather more information for his documentary. He received a, around 150 tips from people. He, he reckoned that they all the tips he received seemed genuine. They weren't just people messing around. And a lot of these tips were from people who at the time had seen or found things that could have related to the disappearances. And the common theme seemed to be that no one had ever had ever come to them or, or had questioned them about it, so this was something that had never been included in the police investigation. So one of the more damning things was that was talk of uh, a search aircraft had apparently spotted wreckage in the water uh, near, I believe, to Flinders Island, but had been told, okay, you, 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 go, you go return to base, we'll send a boat out to check on it. Now, there apparently was a boat that could have gone and checked on it uh, relatively nearby that could have been there soon, but rather than sending that boat, they sent a police boat out, which was not uh, nearly as close, and took three days to get there, by which time any wreckage that might have been in the area would have been swept away by the currents. Uh, there were other claims some scallop fishermen claimed to have dredged up parts of a plane, uh, wings, tail, and, and fuselage parts during the 1980s, but they, having pulled these things up, just threw them back into the water because they didn't, they didn't want to get involved with whatever, with whatever that happened to be. They supposedly didn't want to get involved with the cops. Who knows 
who knows why. Uh, there was a, a report from a fisherman who said that, um, he had pulled up a dress and a bottle of champagne from the waters in that area, and apparently Mrs. Heen had packed a bottle of champagne with her to, in, in the hopes of celebrating the uh, either a successful flight or, who knows, successful lobbying, I don't know. And then there was other... Another story about the idea that uh, about reports that wreckage had washed up on shore somewhere and then had, had been promptly taken away and buried on the order of the authorities. This one, there was, uh, I, I read about a reporter who had supposedly heard, heard from someone else that this had happened and had gone to the area where it seemed like there was um, earth that had been freshly freshly dug up and, and stuff like that, but then he had been told to get out of there and mind his own business very quickly. So there were there were these stories that, that sort of, again, made the whole thing look suspicious from the perspective of the idea that there may have been more evidence out there that could have helped solve the case and that maybe the people who were investing the case were, were choosing to ignore certain information or indeed maybe choosing to cover up certain evidence for for whatever reason now the the book the book and the documentary whatever happened to brenda heen i i am not i do not have first-hand experience with um i listened to a podcast called murder in the land of oz another one of your true crime murder type podcasts with people discussing discussing mysterious tests they did uh, an australian true crime murder podcast uh they covered the, the the disappearance of Brenda Heen. So if you if you if, if you were interested, go look up Murder in the Land of Oz and hunt for their Brenda Heen episode. Uh, in that, one of the hosts said that she had read the book and watched some of the documentary and said that the book, while good, um, she thought it contained a bit much of um, Mr. Millwood making things about himself a little bit. And apparently, the documentary had a bunch of slightly odder stuff of of guys following some guys looking using dowsing or something to try and find the wreckage. It seemed a little bit odd, but, but nevertheless, it contained a whole bunch of details that had not been known up until this point, all of which made the disappearance of Mrs. Heen and indeed Mr. Price much, much more worrisome. So if, if assuming that the flight had been sabotaged and that this, the, 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 their flight didn't just get into trouble for some reason and, and crash into the sea or what have you, assuming it was sabotage, well, then who might have been responsible? Obviously, powerful people were not happy with Mrs. Heen and what she was up to, and it's sort of... The, the first assumption might be, oh, you know, she, she, was, she was knocked off by the government. But, I mean, it, do, it, does, seem, it does seem a strange thing to happen that that a state government would take out a hit on an environment environmental activist in her 60s it, I, I don't know that anyone actually suggested that, that the government themselves were behind it or indeed the, the the powerful hydroelectric commission from what i've seen people seem to think that if it was sabotage it was probably more likely to be an individual someone maybe who who sort of worked for the hydroelectricity industry, someone who had knew what was going on and had a, had a bit of an axe to grind, maybe had a bit of a personal stake in it. You know, they thought that their, their, if, if the dam didn't go ahead, that would cost them their job, it would affect their livelihoods or something like that. I think people seem to think it was probably someone who was taking this a lot more personally. I mean, we all know, if, if you've ever read a comments, uh, letters to the editor or a, a local community Facebook page or anything like that, you know, some people get very hot under the comments over what others might consider to be um, more trivial matters. So 
it's, it's possible that somebody took matters into their own hands. Now, of course, the government and, and, and the powerful folks might not have been directly responsible for sabotage if that is what happened, but you could still blame them for not properly investigating or possibly even actively covering up a disappearance that would have looked very bad for them if it turned out to be due to sabotage. So there are a variety of conspiracy theories you could run there. Now, there is one other, one other wrinkle. There was also the suggestion that maybe the people talking about these disappearances had got it all wrong. There was a suggestion that maybe it was the pilot, Max Price, who was the actual target of any sort of, of, of murder by way of sabotage, and that Mrs. Heen had simply been collateral damage rather than the other way around. Going by this theory, supposedly Mr. Price's business partner had been stealing from the business and had killed Mr. Price to stop it from getting out. Uh, there was also the matter that th this, this particular theory apparently was put forward by Max Price's mistress. He was having an affair with his sister-in-law, apparently, and I've seen a couple of the articles sort of suggested that oh, maybe he'd been you know, killed by a jealous husband or something, but I hadn't, I didn't, didn't see it like, like the fact that it was this woman he was having an affair with was the one who actually came for, I, I don't know, I, I hadn't seen much of that, but I, I did read about, uh, that the, apparently the police did look into this, this possibility. Again, when people talked about the investigation they did here, there was a suggestion that maybe they didn't put as much effort into it as they could have, that maybe they were not as 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 thorough in it as they could have been. But nevertheless, what investigating they did do didn't turn up any sort of financial irregularities that would have provided a motive for murder. So maybe, maybe there is nothing to that, and maybe if something sinister took place, then it, it is Mrs. Heen who was the more likely target. And that really is, um, is where things stand to this day, despite the fact that this extra information came out due to the 2008 documentary, there has never been anything conclusively determined about the deaths of Brenda Heen and, and her pilot Max Price. Now, Last time when I talked about the Rabant killings, it was all just a little bit bleak. A whole bunch of people died and, and there was terrible violence and nothing good uh, ever came of it. Now, in this case, th th there was not a happy ending for Mrs. Heen, but if you, want, if, if, if you want some kind of a happy ending, you could consider the fact that the environmental groups in Tasmania that, that came after and indeed grew out of the Lake Petter Action Committee went on to successfully challenge the construction of the Franklin Dam in the late 70s and early 80s and actually had a lot more that while they did not have success uh, saving Lake Pedder, they did manage to save the environment in other areas. And people have sort of said, you know, it was a, uh, I can't find a decent construction of the so-and-so had to walk before these guys could run. But essentially the, the, the Lake Pedder activism had to happen so that these other successful uh, acts of environmental activism could occur in the future. So, um, so, so, so positive things did result even even after even after Mrs. Heen's death, the organisation that she'd devoted the latter part of her life to carried on uh, and bore fruit. And indeed today, there is the Lake Pedder Restoration Committee, who are people campaign, campaigning still still to this day uh, to actually have the area drained so that the original Lake Pedder area can be restored. So who knows? Maybe 
maybe there will be a Lake Peter once again. I don't know what would happen, what, what, what happened to the area for being underwater for about 50 years I don't know but presumably stuff could be done so who knows maybe 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 Mrs. Heen will get her wish posthumously after all that that would be nice let's let's assume that's going to happen and then we can go out on a cheery note so that that is the story of the mysterious disappearance of Brenda Heen I don't know right now whether or not Emma's going to be back at this time next week so we may have a regular episode for you next week or you may have another one of these filler episodes next week. We'll, we'll just have to find out. But for now, I think that's all I have to say. So, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. The podcast's Guide to the Conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R.X. Denton. Our show's conspiracy producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember, the truth is out there, but not quite where you think you left it.